Hi, I'm Nikki. I want to inspire you to live authentically. My aim is to raise consciousness through interviewing people that are living truly to their nature and purpose. I bet you have a few degrees. One of them is a master's degree in landscape architecture, which has played such a huge part in you being the co-owner and CEO of Cedarkloof. Uh, tell me a bit about this beautiful retreat and how you've built it up to be what it is today. Because I've been here, coming here for about 20 years and it was not like this when I started coming here. <laughs> Hi Nikki. Um, yes, I moved here about four years ago. Then it was pretty much a grass paradise. Um, it was part of a golf course development. Um, there were expanses of grass, very little diversity and very few birds. And we started just by taking out the grass, re-establishing um, multiple tiers of fembos, and almost immediately the birds started coming back. Um, and it was my absolute dream to take my landscape architecture knowledge of design um, together with tourism. It's kind of an experiential design discipline. And then you apply it to a natural environment. Uh, it's a privilege to work within natural systems. It sounds fascinating, but I'm also very interested in what's wrong with grass. <laughs> Why are you taking all the grass out? <laughs> I well, mean, it's made a huge difference, but yeah. how does it make a difference? Well, first of all, grass is a monoculture. Um, there's very little diversity in it. And in the Cedarburg, to me, it just has no sense of place here. Um, it's maybe in high rainfall areas. No matter what grass you plant, it is always high maintenance and it always requires a lot of um, watering and we are just now especially through three and four years of drought in the western cape i don't think people want to see sprinklers going all the time i just came back from the bushveld um, and i went to a retreat space there and it was expanses and expanses of lawn and it's in a, in the winter dry season and i just even if there was a river, I cannot stand the sprinklers going. It's, it's no longer part of our value system. Um, people's values are changing when it comes to landscape. Landscape no longer needs to be suppressed and needs to be formalized for us to be able to identify it. We're coming more into terms of our own, own wildness and therefore we can identify with the wildness of the landscape around us. And that doesn't mean you can't create what's around you because you've decided to plant specific Feinbos bushes around for that have created immense beauty around each of the chalets or homes in this space. Oh, you can create so much more. With um, the Feinbos palette is extremely wide. So you, if you're an artist, and you, it just means that your whole container is full of brushes instead of just one big <laughs> green brush. You have containers full of textures and colors. And, and if you want to draw in birds, birds like nectar and some like seeds, some like um, um, insects. And some bushes needs to be there for the birds to be protected from. They, they want to, they want to uh, disappear into, into thickets and, um, and then some want to perch. So even if you, if you paint with nature, you have, you have so much choice. So as an artist with nature, it's, it, um, moving away from, from grass just gives you multiple layers of options. And moving away from grass is no small feat. You have to really work with the soil. 
So tell me a little bit about the soil and the fungus and Yeah, I'm so passionate about works. soil. Soil <laughs> is everything. <laughs> I absolutely, I did um, a fascinating course in soil biology with um, Dr. Um, Elaine Ingham and she's from the Soil Institute in, in Oregon. And she has taught me so much about the life in the soil. I know that um, recently there's been some documentaries that um, came out that um, presents it to a broad spectrum of people, just the fascination with soil. And, and you know, in, in this day and age, when we look at what we put into our bodies, our gut systems, the, the fascination with the bacteria in, in our gut, the soil is the same. Um, it, it, the systems of um, nutrient tr transformation um, by the plants through um, bacteria and fungal systems is absolutely fascinating. It just happens externally, whereas with people that happens internally. And so the, the soil biology to me is just as fascinating as it is to you that really, you really watch what you eat and, and um, you really watch your gut biome um, and the soil biome is the same. I work with the plants to create an external soil biome um, that will that will give them the most amount of resilience. And what does it take? What does it take to take out grass and a soil that is almost dead to creating all these beautiful flowers and um, all the different fainbos that comes up and the, that, that grows in the soil that never could grow before? What does it take to actually get there? So grass is um, bacterial dominant and they like a lot of nitrogen. So first of all, it's to understand that don't stop interfering because normally when people add anything to the soil, they bring a lot of foreign bacteria in and they bring a lot of nitrogen in through compost and fertilizers. So it's to not do that. It's almost to do, I like to go against everything that you have been taught and to do none of that. Um, what I wanted to reintroduce into the soil is um, natural fungal fungus and here we have the wilderness all around us. So I have some fungal systems that, that can still migrate down after we've removed the um, grass. So I, I remove the grass and all of the bacteria that's attached to the roots. And then we plant the fanbos and I only mulch, just mulch and mulch and mulch. Um, fungus uh, really likes carbon. Right. Um, where bacteria is more nitrogen oriented and so it was about adding carbon and layers and layers of carbon. So what kind and of mulch do you use to add the carbon? It doesn't really matter because here we had a lot of uh, uh, eucalyptus available and a lot of people shy away from eucalyptus um, they're concerned about the oils in the soil. I've never found that eucalyptus or pine actually um, the, the oils in these plants, um, in these trees, don't really do any damage to the soil. I've never seen it. So with the eucalyptus mulch, um, we let it um, just rest for a year um, for, for the um, most volatile oils to actually dissipate. But um, you can use anything. Um, the soil is an incredible carbon sink. Um, all of the world's pollution problems can be solved by sinking more carbon into the soil. Um, and um, so we clean for fires all the time around the houses and in the riverbeds. We take out aliens and everything just gets recycled back into the soil. So the more um, carbon we build up in, in, the <laughs> in these soils and we're not even um, here, especially this valley that you and I are sitting in at the moment. It, it wasn't natural soil we were working with. Um, this was a landfill before it was a golf course. 
And wow. so the golf course was built over a landfill. So this, the, they left us very little layers of building sand. So it had absolutely no life in it at all. And if you look at the soil now, after four years of adding layers of carbon, um, you will see it's full of roots and it's full of organic material and insects and um, not earthworms. We're a little bit too dry for earthworms, but that's not really what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm definitely more looking for um, actual organic material that is held in these sandy soils. Um, because attached to the organic material is all of your predator insects um, and they start breaking down the bigger pieces um, and to make it finer and finer and finer until the bacteria and the fungus can actually absorb um, the nutrients that becomes available. But the organic material also holds water. Um, it um, shades the soil. So it, um, it's yeah, it, very uh, important in such a hot climate. Yes, extreme, because we here in, in the Cedarburg, we work with sometimes up to 50 degrees Celsius in the summer. but at the same time with winds that blow for hours and hours and hours. So if the heat doesn't pull out the water out of the sandy soils, um, the wind will do it for you. Um, so the more protection you can have over the soils and where the plants have actually grown in, it's now enough protection. Now you have um, the, um, the, the layers of protection above the soil um, and also all of the organisms that is alive. The, the plants are the kings of this kingdom and they, um, they actually orchestrate um, the system of, of soil bacteria and, and nutrients that move um, within the So there's the an intelligence in the plants that actually creates different what, whatever they need. Oh, the intelligence is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing how specific a plant can send out certain sugars to ask for specific ions of minerals to be brought to its root zone um, for absorption through the plants. So the, plants commu the communication of the plants with the fungal and the bacterial world is absolute, it's genius. I and thought it was only trees that had this system, but it's each little plant as well. Yeah. Um, the, um, the cooperation between the pl um, different tiers of plants. Um, in the Fenbos, we t talk about alfen forest. So you don't often see big trees like this unless you're in the gullies. It's mostly, it's mostly our climax species, um, the, uh, the protea layers, are smaller than what you think of as a big tree. But in that environment, it is the climax plant. It is the big tree. And, um, and everything that grows underneath of it is, is locked into that or is tapped into that same system. Um, and so all the layers of plants work together. And they work together with water control and also with nutrient um, exchanges. So it's a, it's a community rather than I'm just going to find what I need for myself. I've learned so much from the plant kingdom about community about how community works and how um, a natural community within the human systems can actually also work. Um, the plants are, are great teachers when it comes to cooperation and community. And um, competition is there. It's not that they do not compete for water um, and for nutrients, um, but it is a, it's a lower value than, um, than the higher values of cooperation and community. So if there is enough uh, available then they will uh, help each other out. And if they're really feeling like there's been a drought for a long time, then it's, okay, I'm gonna do what I can to help myself. Yeah, this wild olive that we're sitting underneath, um, they can do too, they are allelopathic. So it means they ex um, excrete 
certain tannins out of their leaves that's poisonous to other plants. So they sometimes do <laughs> make space for their own babies, you know. Right. They, they do, um, they sometimes use it against um, insects and animals that come and eat them, but they also use it against other plants to, to keep thickets away from their rooting system so that their own babies can actually proliferate underneath their um, canopies. So different plants will act in different ways Definitely. in these situations. Yeah. Okay. And, um, but the, the, like the wild olive, it also has many uh, good parts, the, the, the fruit the, the birds will eat and so it gives as well. Oh, this tree gives um, so much. It's, uh, it's used for many, many um, different medicinal reasons. Um, its roots are very good for um, kidney diseases. We do a lot of eye washes with the leaves. Um, the leaves are also great for um, skin problems. And here, um, if there's a lot of pollution or maybe there was spraying of um, the orange groves and people get eye infections, you just do an eye wash um, from the leaves and it actually relieves um, tired and red eyes. And this tree's prize is also um, that it makes the best walking sticks. Uh -huh. um, I think in the Western Cape, your most prized walking sticks come from um, the, the um, wild olive. So it will never just take, it gives as well, and it gives so much. I mean, you also make the most fantastic tea from its leaves. Actually, no, the tea is from the sand olive. Okay, yeah, it's a that's kind right. Of that's olive. from the greener one that's um, right behind us. Okay, how um, many different kinds of olives are in this area? Um, here is mostly just the sand olive is not a true olive. I think it's it's called an olive because of the shape of its leaves. Okay. So sometimes when plants emulate um, um, each other, then then they start borrowing names. But yeah, you know, the um, sand olive is a Dodonea viscosa, and also a great healer. One of the m most basic teachings that the plant world has to us is its generosity. It just wants to support, and it gives and it gives and it gives, and and it offers itself to us in, in the giving process. Um, that's, that's another value that I think about every time that I'm out in the garden, is that the principles of generosity was um, by which this kingdom lives. What I also find fascinating is, so the medicine in the plants in this area that you've built up with this amazing, deep, rich soil of, is very strong, but you've spoken about it being even stronger in the mountains where it's almost untouched. Absolutely. How come it's more strong where, where no one's touched it? Um, mostly, I think, because of the soil biology is really intact. Um, that the higher diversity of soil organisms will allow a plant to have a higher diversity of, of botanicals in, um, in the plant itself. Um, that also there's no watering in, in the mountain in the dry summer, so the plants are really, really, really stressed. But in the gardens we do water maybe even 20 minutes a week. But even that amount of watering um, I'm still dilutes the um, botanicals a little bit. And also the companion plants. In the mountains there are thousands of plants in, in this um, companion um, um, planting community. And we don't have, no matter how high I build this diversity up, we can never have the diversity that's in the mountain. You started off walking through the mountains with some local medicine men that have taught you on a very um, uh, ancient basis 
what medicines are in these mountains. How much have you learned from people in this area and how much has it um, added to your knowledge? I was so lucky um, that um, people just started showing up. I would just um, wish for somebody to come and teach me and come out in the gardens and there would be people just away, like literally in the garden waiting um, to take me on a walk. It was um, people um, started showing up and they started um, teaching me. We would take five hour walks into the mountains. And So wait, hold on. So you had this thought, I want someone to come and um, to teach me about the plants. And then without putting it out there, it literally manifested. It just it just does. <laughs> if you really want to learn, your teachers will show up. There um, you go. Yes, and uh, so oh, we have. Um, there are still some people who practice in the tradition of um, what they call ayah. So it's people that are they're not only vegan um, and teetotalers, but they will also not wear any clothing that is um, not um, pure Hessian, and they don't wear any shoes. So the, the purity of of how they conduct themselves and how they work with plants um, and uh, is, is at a very high standard. The integrity is really high. Um, and I literally just walked out into the garden in, in this thought process that somebody please come and teach me about these plants. Because I have gone to the Guru. I've had the marvelous opportunity to spend time um, with um Johannes and Antoinette Pinar um, in the Guru and they have, they have taught me um, in those occasions, not just about how to use the plants, but also the integrity with which you should conduct your life in order to be able to um, work with these plant medicines. Um, it is an entire ecology within yourself um, around the use of and the knowledge of plant medicine. And, um, and they have taught me a lot, um, but I wanted somebody to also teach me about this specific area because the, the plants differ so much and the medicinal available plants differ so much from area to area. Um, and um, yeah, I had, I've had many, many walks with um, the, our local traditional healers, um, especially with the young harvesters. Uh, the young harvesters still go out and, and they stay in the mountains for two, three months at a time um, and they harvest the plants and, and bring them um, into their communities oh. um, and it's all oral learning from the elders um, so and their learning is so absolutely um, spot on you know I couldn't um, I, I would sit there with my books and trying to <laughs> match plants up and so on mm. and their learning is all very practical in the, in the felt and, um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them um, but it was also my personnel I have um, I have a group of women that work for me that also ha they have a lot of knowledge. Um, at the beginning, they were just extremely shy to share the knowledge. They didn't really want to um, go into the field medicines because they were indoctrinated to only believe in Western medicine. And um, it was a shame. And I wanted to inspire them to, to open up about um, to themselves about their traditions of growing up with herbs. That's so, it's so important that, that people remember what we actually have here. Yeah. Because everything here can cure all our disease by knowing what to pick for what illness. And not just what to pick, but how to then use it. Are we going to 
heat it? Are we going to make it into a tea? Smoke it? Yeah. And all that information has been slowly watered down because people aren't, they don't feel that it's important anymore, but it yeah. is so important. Yeah, and we have had um, a clinic system, especially in the small rural towns. Um, the healthcare system is problematic. Um, we always have access to plants, but we don't necessarily have access to a hospital. Um, and especially for smaller things that you can cure so easily. M my personnel used to go to the clinic um, and sit at the clinic in a line for a whole day and maybe not get helped for a boil or toothache or a eye irritation. Small things that we can very, very easily treat um, right at home. Um, and so it took me a long time to inspire um, my personnel um, to go back to their own roots um, and and it wasn't about teaching me I don't want to be the holder of all of the knowledge I'm I'm a grower more than a herbalist but um, we can all take our own health care back into our own hands by um, learning more about the plants that grow around us um, and the power that they have it is um, it's a privilege that we all have and it's a power that we all have access to um, and it's, it's about just re-inspiring people. It's, you don't replace healthcare systems, but you allow people to just empower themselves um, with, with things that can so easily be treated at home. And we skipped a generation. My grandmother and my grandmother's mother, they all had this information. And, so, you know, and it's as if uh, we, we just learned that it's no longer valuable, but it is now more valuable than ever. I mean, I, me personally, I would love not to have to go to the doctor for everything. Yeah. I mean, I already don't, but yeah. um, just a little bit of knowledge allows you to treat small ailments, like you say, with something natural that works. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, and the plants of the Cedarburg, especially because it's such an extreme environment, ha has a, packs a, lot, a huge punch. Um, they have, their potency is really high, um, especially the leaf plants. Um, the um, Neisner area is very well known for its rooting plants, but the Cedarburg area is very well um, appreciated for its leaf plants. For instance, Rooibos, Cancerbush, Buchu, these plants we're all very familiar with already. But there are so many others um, that is just as potent and as valuable for our, um, for our health maintenance and also for our health crises. And 80% um, of all South Africans use direct plant material as part of their um, health regime. And, um, and so they, there is um, a formal health system and then there is a huge informal health system already in South Africa. But you see that um, in places it is disappearing because people don't have access to um, an area where they can actually pick plants or they don't, just don't have the knowledge anymore. The knowledge is just disappearing. So that's also one I wanted to speak to you about. Rehabilitating the land has made a huge difference to the community around you. What can you tell me about that? What does it take to, to make that change? You've already spoken a little into how it took time to make people um, change their minds about just going to the doctor every day, but what, what other um, impact has it had? Yeah, I, I wish we had um, one of my personnel here to actually ask them because <laughs> they, will, they will be able to um, put it so much more eloquently but what I can say as an outsider that the moment that the women for instance um, sat around a table again and started working with herbs like having actual contact with plants again in their hands 
their entire personalities change, their confidence change, their um, um, just the way that they conduct themselves completely change. Um, it has restored um, something so important in in their being, um, and I and I I don't necessarily have the right words for it, but it's it's just like there's a quality that have come into my personnel ever since we have been working with herbs directly. So it is um, so that's one direct benefit um, on a very personal level. But also now it's not just my personnel who gets um, free herbs, but they take it home to their families. Their families also get treated um, because sometimes there's a bacterial infection and it goes through the whole family. So the whole family then gets, um, gets to take Villadaja home because everybody has some kind of um, skin condition that's happening in the house. So the whole home, um, and, um, and now I'm starting to work with a community of Rastafarians um, to, to get um, medicine into their communities and then they take it out to the larger communities. Um, medicine from this farm, the city yes, farms? Yes, medicine just from, just from this rehabilitation. See, when we did the rehabilitation, they, we didn't, I didn't have an agenda to plant a pharmacy. I planted only what can be grown in this environment. It's a very harsh environment and I didn't want to have to use artificial methods to keep these plants alive. So you stick with endemic plants to this area or locally indigenous plants. Right. And they just happen to be this incredible diverse pharmacy. And, um, and so, but I only discovered that a year into it or two years after the rehabilitation. Um, but because they are um, locally indigenous, that that's also why you don't have to use um, soil amendments and a tremendous amount of water. Like it, it cuts your maintenance plan completely out. What impact does rehabilitation of the land have on the wider community? This place will hold insects that can actually fight diseases much further away. You know, a positive impact here will definitely cause positive reverberation psychologically um, way down the line, but on a social level, it also has much wider reverberations. A apart from the fact that my personnel leaves here um, healthy and happy and they take that back to their families, um, there is a group of people that I have um, been in community with for the last um, few years and they love to visit the farm, but they knew it before. They saw the destruction that it went through. And the first time that I had some of the chiefs of our, of our um, local um, Khoi communities here, they started crying when they saw um, that we have gone through so much trouble um, to actually restore um, something that was destroyed before. They were walking around here with tears just like flowing um, down their faces. It was, it was very emotional. Um, but it's also just to see that um, their respect is being restored between people because um, you know, people who grew up here, they, they have a deep identification with plants and the power of the plants. It is so a part of their personhood and their family structure and their healing structure. Um, and so for an outsider like me to come and give it the respect that it is due and by building it up and then to make it available for, for anybody that wants to come and, um, and um, yeah, just enjoy the bounty and, and, um, and benefit from the bounty. So all herbs just get passed on. And also um, we have 
sense of abundance that um, we create there's there's always enough there's always enough of everything and so um, that, wow, that has that must be so healing for the communities after so much repression <laughs> I would um, uh, I have many dreams of how to take this forward because the lessons that I have learned in this last few years it is not um, nearly at its completion um, it is not nearly even um, at its, its full embodiment of what it really wants to teach us. And so I would love to teach um, farmers the value of indigenous fanbos. And it is not just where you can harvest buchu or if there's wild arroibos. Um, there is so much medicinal value, just like in the Amazon, to, um, to intact natural um, virgin communities um, of plants. Um, we need to understand that the same thing happens in the fanbos. We have the same diversity of potency of medicines, and so as in the Amazon. Yes, mean. yes. I, I mean, mean that's quite that's quite <laughs> mind blowing because we do think of I think of the Amazon as having all these untouched medicinal plants that people have gone to explore, but actually. As a South African, we we've only we are only touching the surface of coming back to this knowledge. Yes, I mean they from the studies that I've um, read is thirteen to fourteen percent of all of the species of plants can be used medicinally. So in this area, there's about eight thousand different species of of plants because we are in an extremely rich fenbos community. So we're looking at over a thousand four hundred thousand six hundred plants that can be used medicinally and it's not just for direct medicinal value you know there's a this this maintenance some plants are used for nutrition some for smoking some for creating pipes some for playing instruments it is it's a cultural bounty um, and medicinal plants are only only a, a part of this cultural bounty but I would love to teach um, farmers the value of um, indigenous fanbos so it's not so easily removed because some crop um, is seen to have a higher economic value that there should actually be some consideration um, before you remove um, what people here refer to as brush or gemosh or felgut or you know like something they don't want to use something that has no value they but just, it has so yeah, much and, value. and it actually has so much value you know the community up um, there is there is a lot of teaching I think that needs to happen because um, there should also be more teaching about um, replanting um, medicinal fables as part of larger restoration projects. And what what is in it for the farmers to keep pockets of places where it they are looking after the fables? Oh, there's there's a lot of material, um, well published, well researched material about keeping wildlife corridors. Um, wherein um, beneficial insects and beneficial animals can move through. So more than that, um, I think that some plants are just becoming unavailable countrywide for use as medicine. For instance, Artemisia at the moment is, is like, it was the COVID medicine. Um, and not just a monoculture of it because people are taking it. No, uh, because monocultures don't bring um, the quality of um, botanicals in the plant medicine. So the medicine won't be as strong? No, the medicine will not have the same um, levels. It needs the uh, companion plants to, to help them out. Yeah, you are very familiar with our gardens. And sometimes I just want to tell people that this is agriculture. 
It looks beautiful. It, it does. Is and the birds. Oh, oh, my goodness, the birds. I mean, you can hear them in the audio. They're yeah. all over the place. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the birds have increased in four years from probably two or three species of birds to 125 species. And not just, uh, in, from what I've noticed, not just increased in species, but increased in numbers of each species. <laughs> Sometimes they are <laughs> so loud. <laughs> Sometimes just take audio of the birds and send it to people. And go, this is just right outside my door. And all the tiers of, of the ecology plays a role in, in the quality of the plants. So we have to think about agriculture. Um, there's a higher yield when plants are planted in a higher diversity. The only reason why we planted in monocultures and in straight lines is so that the mechanization of it is easier and the, um, it just takes less time to, um, to harvest it. But it actually doesn't bring out the best in the plants when they are planted like that. And when you're Right, which directly uh, affects whether it's food or medicine, which you know, food is medicine as well, it directly affects the end consumer eating or taking that, that food or plant into their system because they're not getting the full benefit of it. Yeah. We've moved a very long, far way away from thinking that um, this one active ingredient in a plant that is the beneficial ingredient. Um, there's a whole study and doctorate um, um, avenue called um, phytomedicines. And phytomedicines believe that the whole plant matters, that you don't extract one or two or three um, active ingredients. It is the entire body of botanicals that brings the healing or brings the nutrition. And, um, and so... It is whole, it is complete. It is whole and complete. <laughs> and therefore, when you administer a plant, for instance, through teas, we love drinking herbal teas. We're yes, I'm going to have some of your yeah. lovely tea now. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that tea extracts the, the whole body of botanicals. Um, if we work with plants that have a lot of resins, and then we might need an, a different extractor, um, like an alcohol or ethanol um, extracting agent. But when we're working with leaf plants, um, and, and just a simple tea extraction brings the full range of botanicals right to your body. And so I love drinking herbal teas as part of your daily um, maintenance regimen. And and it tastes so good it and it makes so you good. feel so good. <laughs> yeah. You have an amazing, um, some beautiful teas with the, some of the robust that you grow and um, the uh, sand olive that we were talking about. Yes, and we love to experiment. Sometimes it's just adding lavender to it or fennel or whatever is just at hand and then it's mince and then you leave the robust out and <laughs> then you just drink a parsley tea with Lavender and uh, I try to around these units that we have and um, also grow um, herbs that people know. I know the guests that come here also love to drink your teas and you you've packaged them so beautifully and organically and left them in each uh, house. Tell me a bit more about um, what you do and what brings in um, so many people into this area where, where tourism is, has been struggling. I want people to experience rooibos, um in in a higher quality than what they used to. And so we package our rooibos loose leaf. I, um, I buy my rooibos actually from a farmer that is not, it's not from our farm, because our rooibos is still very young and our soil is still recovering from, from years of damage. But um, near Clem and William, there's a farm called Achenbach's Kral, and they grow their rooibos in between fenbos. Um, so wow. they have 
higher clay content, so higher mineral content. So their um, rooibos is darker and um, the flavor sits in your mouth for much longer. Um, so in a good on way. A, yeah, <laughs> on, a, on a flavor spectrum, I think it's, um, it, it, it's a rooibos that people don't know when they've grown up with rooibos. And we export also a lot of our really good rooibos. And so I found um, rooibos that I would love to share with people. And so we, we, um, um, I have beautiful pots and cups in people's houses so that they can experience um, rooibos in its um, higher quality. Sitting on the balcony <laughs> or sitting in your beautiful jacuzzi with the fresh water off the farm and sipping your amazing tea, looking at the bird life and the, all the colors of the plants. It is amazing. Yes. <laughs> it is. It really is an amazing experience. Thank you. Thank and you. because of that, you you really are full, which is almost unprecedented in this time. Yes. We have been um, extremely blessed with people coming back. Um, year after year, um, spreading the word, uh, word of mouth. Um, and I believe um, that it is because we are um, doing type of tourism that I call healing tourism. It is bringing people into a land that has been restored. So instead of making a place um, um, more stressed by coming here, you are actually adding to the revitalization. So you become part of a network of, of building up instead of putting more pressure on a place. Wow. Um, and so I, um, I love the tourists for being part of the cycle because it, it makes this all possible, but it also is the motivator for why this started. I wanted to give a platform to people. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it, it started as an aesthetic platform, but it has become so much more. But without the tourists, it would not have had the inspiration or the economic cycle um, that um, um, allows this to happen. I believe that um, people are attracted to places that has deep integrity, that our healing is not just on the land, it is with our people, um, it's the restoration that people feel um, indirectly when they come, it's the level of care that we, um, that we impart on, on everything, that you bring those principles into the idea of wherever you are, you are restoring. You are restoring your friendships, your family relationships, you are restoring a wider community, you are restoring the ecology. Um, but, but there is an economic component to it. We, we, we live in an economic world. So, um, and for us, the economic component is brought through tourism, um, but it's also through starting small um, plant-centered economies for our women a small brand of um, um, medicinal uh, plants or teas and it doesn't business doesn't have to always be so big it it can be um, it can be locally driven and um, and locally based or or we have a lot of overseas um, guests that actually go and um, and take our products back to Germany or to America or um, and and then it's very quickly is not so local anymore but um, it is um, I like the idea of wherever there are rehabilitation projects to find out how these plant-centered small economies can um, can benefit from the rehabilitation project and then also benefit the community so that there are these little close circles of energy whenever energy is going into the environment that it is not just energy into the environment it's also energy into the community and into the economic systems that keeps these communities um, in, in financial health. 
to build schools, to, to, um, to fuel um, the other needs um, that they have. This, it is really such an inspiring model. I hope that uh, people hear it and can take something from it and really be able to create something similar in their fields to take forward. Thank you so much for all this amazing information. Oh, thank you, Nikki. It's, it's um, always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> I loved it. I loved sitting under this tree and, um, and just have a conversation about these things that matter to both of us. And the birds agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the NixiePod podcast. Please do subscribe.